Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on the show, we're talking about the Virginia legislature restricting the rights of transgender students. We'll be reflecting on the establishment of the Central Intelligence Agency 75 years ago. And it's Tuesday, so it's time for our Tech for the People segment. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, there is news of a prisoner swap coming out of the Biden administration today. But it's not the one you think it is. CNN reports that Mark Freericks, an American held captive in Afghanistan for more than two years, has been released in a prisoner swap, a senior Biden administration official confirmed Monday. Freericks, uh, a Navy veteran from Illinois, was kidnapped in late January 2020 while he was doing construction contract work in Afghanistan. Bringing Mark home has been a top priority for President Biden and his national security team, the Biden administration official said. Bringing Mark home has been a top priority, not Brittany Griner. Freericks is being exchanged for Haji Bashir Noorazi, a prominent member of the Taliban who was in prison in the U.S. on drug trafficking charges for 17 years and was granted clemency as part of the deal. A member of the Taliban gets clemency for drug trafficking, and that seemed to be done without much haggling and public grandstanding by the Biden administration. But no word on the kind of deal Russian Victor Boot is going to get if he is ever exchanged for Brittany Griner. Now, of course, Russia has made it clear that they will not negotiate this prisoner swap between Griner and Boot publicly. And I do wonder if the Biden administration realizes, though, how this looks right now, celebrating the successful negotiation of captive for prisoner exchange while staying mum on the one they botched so spectacularly just last month with their public declaration that exchanging boot for Griner was the idea of the State Department rather than the deal that Russia offered the U.S. from the beginning. It seems that Anthony Blinken realizes how this looks and said that the U.S. will, quote, bring the same determination and focus to freeing other Americans arbitrarily and unjustly detained. I want the families of Americans who are being arbitrarily detained or held hostage anywhere in the world to know that our commitment to them to bringing their loved ones home is resolute and we will relentlessly continue to focus on doing just that. Well, I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine what this must look like for Brittany Griner's family, because it sure does not look to me like the U.S. is bringing the same determination and focus to securing her release as it did in securing Freericks at all. Color me shocked, but it appears that maybe Florida Governor Ron Praying Mantis DeSantis might have done something illegal when he flew those 50 Venezuelans seeking asylum from Texas to Massachusetts. Politico reports that Bexar County Sheriff Javier Salazar, an elected Democrat, said that while he could not cite specific laws that may have been broken by relocating the migrants, his office will be investigating what he called an abuse of human rights. 
Somebody saw fit to come from another state, hunt them down, prey upon them, and then take advantage of their desperate situation just for the sake of political theater, just for the sake of making a statement, Salazar told reporters on Monday. I believe people need to be held accountable for it to the extent possible. You see, the DeSantis administration last week paid an aviation company $615,000 to transport 48 migrants from San Antonio, Texas, that is located in Bexar County, to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Salazar told reporters Monday that the migrants were lured away from a migrant resource center in San Antonio under false pretenses. We talked about that the other day, such as the promise of work before ultimately winding up in Martha's Vineyard. But I wouldn't get my hopes up for any human trafficking charges against DeSantis, as delightful as that would be. The thing he may have done that might get him is that he may have used money that was earmarked for transporting immigrants out of Florida. See, according to the budget language, the $12 million pot DeSantis paid for those flights from was specifically earmarked to, quote, facilitate the transport of unauthorized aliens from this state, that's Florida, consistent with federal law end quote, literally from the legislation. Because the people arrived first in Texas and were then brought to Florida, lawmakers are saying that DeSantis violated the law. Further, the law also specified that the flights should be used to transport unauthorized aliens. But lawyers speaking on behalf of the migrants say that many who were flown to Martha's Vineyard are seeking asylum, which puts them in a different category legally. Of course, praying mantis DeSantis doesn't care about any asylum claims deciding for himself that they're all lying, saying, quote, most of the people coming across the border illegally are making effectively bogus asylum claims. If they're making asylum claims that we know are not going to be valid, they should wait in Mexico. Let that claim be adjudicated. I don't know how he knows that people's asylum claims are going to be invalid. But I know that DeSantis is an invalid human being. And even though he probably won't go down for this horrific act of exploitation for political gain, as far as I'm concerned, what he did was a crime against humanity. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on, as they say. I'm happy to be joined by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, contributor to Outsports, and host of the Transporter Room. Carly, thanks so much for joining me. Jackie, always great to be here. Really glad you could join to talk about this latest policy in Virginia uh, in an attempt to restrict the rights of transgender students. The administration of uh, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia this week 
uh, introduced a bunch of legislation that would sharply restrict the rights of transgender students, sending schools in the state into turmoil and drawing strong denunciations from Democratic legislators and some educators. But of course, the Republican uh, base loves it. What is going on with these new policies in Virginia, Carly? Well, what this policy of, shall we say, readjustment is, is a reaction. The previous administration in Virginia, under Democrat Ralph Northam, put forth a group of rules which basically affirmed trans students in their school, saying you will be safe here, you will be respected here, you will have an environment for you that's conducive to learning like any other child in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Well, Glenn Youngkin as part of this map, Glenn Youngkin being the trumper that he is, decided we're going to roll all that back. So basically he reversed everything that the previous governor, Governor Northam, did. And this is a, this goes beyond the pale. Simply put, students must use the bathrooms and locker rooms with the sex assigned to them at birth. If a student wants to participate in sport or other extracurricular activities, they must only participate in the teams assigned to them at birth. You know, it's the usual thing. The thing that really strikes me is he brought back the bathroom bill. Mm. That's what this really is. He brought back the bathroom panic. And I want to give listeners the understanding of what, let's appreciate the stakes. When you keep kids out of the bathroom, keep kids out of the bathroom, what do you do? You basically keep them out of school because everybody's got to use the bathroom. Everybody poops. That's just a fact of life. And they, and essentially what these rules basically say is, we don't believe that transgender youth are real, and we certainly don't want them in our schools. And that is the biggest level. Yes, we can talk about things such as teachers can only refer to a student by the pronouns associated with their sex at birth. If the student wants a different name, the parents have to be told those things are also part of the policy. But the thing that strikes me, that's really striking to me, is that they're bringing back the bathroom panic. And here's the thing, they're bringing it back in a way where, unfortunately, People will buy it because they're not getting the counter narrative. And that's why I hope people are listening here because this is the counter narrative. That th what this really means is we don't believe transgender kids exist and we don't want these kids in our school, uh, in our school as their authentic selves. You either go to school the way we want you to or you will not be educated. That's what this really is, Jackie. Yeah. And, you know, about this, this bathroom, uh, 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 stipulation in this legislation. Here's my question, and I hope it's a question that everyone listening is asking. How will teachers and administrators in schools be able to enforce this uh, piece of the legislation and force students, transgender students, to use the bathroom of their sex at birth? Like, how do you enforce such a measure? Well, really, that que that question really leads to a deeper question: Why are we even Why are we even putting this back in the lap of teachers and administrators to do it? Right. Because mainly of the real of all of this, this really has nothing to do with trans kids. Trans kids is the easiest way to tell the larger agenda, and the larger agenda, as I've said on this show and other forums before, is to defund public education. Mm. That has been the goal of hard right reactionary conservatives like Glenn Youngkin and the people who fund Glenn Youngkin for decades. They don't want 
public education. They don't want education for all kids. They want education for some kids and training for others. It's the old, it's the old school idea of we might pick one genius out of the rabble, but the rest, we just want to educate you enough for certain menial tasks. Ironically, the person who said that, Thomas Jefferson, hmm. father of, of many of you, the father of public education in this country, and also where is he from? Virginia. Little history lesson right there. But the biggest thing is, this is really about, for these people, an underlying cause defunding public education, and they're using transphobia and anti-trans panic to do it. And again, to listeners, don't be fooled by this, because that's really the stake. And, and you may not know anyone who's trans, but I'm pretty sure you know kids who are going to school. And what they're really trying to do is take school, is really trying to defund public education, which will affect students across the board. And if it can work in Virginia, this is if it works in Virginia, they're going to try and export across the country. They've already done it with anti-trans hysteria. But that is the under that's the issue underneath the issue. That's what's really at the derma here. If they can find a different way to demonize public education, they do it. But this is the most effective way that they can for, to them. And they're going at it wholeheartedly. Now one thing I will say, I want to give a shout out to somebody who's actively standing in the gap against this, and that is Delegate Danica Rome. Danica Rome is a delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates. She's also a transgender woman, and she's come right out front and saying that, that if you try to press this, if the Department of Education tries to press this, all this does is open the door to a massive lawsuit. And oh, just a note to Governor Youngkin, do you know who Chase Strangio is? Keep this up. You'll meet him. And you won't like meeting him. Yeah. Who, who is that? G- give us some more insight into into uh, what you just said, Carly. Well, first off, Dan Carone, like I said, de- delegate infrastructure, at, uh, delegate in the, in the House of Delegates. Excellent. I mean, excellent infrastructure expert has been has gotten a lot of work done in regards to inf- infrastructure in her district in Virginia and has been, become the, a go to person for infrastructural issues. In addition to obviously being trans, speaking out, speaking out about speaking out about these bills, speaking out about these bills, speaking out about these issues, and she's been up front. Now, if it does, now right now, one thing people have to realize to give you some more background is that these policies haven't gone into effect yet. There's a 30-day comment period, and the board of, and the Department of Education in Virginia still has to review them. There's a chance the DOE will look at these say, and look at these and say no. We're not letting these go through the gate. There's a possibility. And there's also going to be a lot of street heat applied. I mean, LGBTQ groups, education groups, teachers unions in Virginia already are already sounding the alarm and getting in the gap. So there's a fight here. But if it does go through, according to Delegate Rome, and, and she made sure she made this point on her Twitter the day this was announced, this violates Virginia's human rights law, mm-hmm. which means it opens the door to court action. And if court action comes, uh-oh, look who's coming. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Chase Strangio, who's the, who's the legal eagle for trans justice at the ACLU. And Chase Strangio is a lot like Aaron Judge. He wields a pretty big bat, and his batting average is pretty high, and he hits a lot of home runs. You don't want to meet this guy in a courtroom. Most likely, you lose. Just ask about seven states right now that try to put up anti-trans nonsense, and then it got challenged in federal court. Really, 
And these young like Glenn Youngkin knows how this is going to come down. This is about nothing. This is election year Kabuki theater in one way. This is about Kabuki theater, not just here, but across the country. After all, Glenn Youngkin is a headliner at an event for a candidate in Arizona next week. Wow. So in many ways, this is about the Republican strategy for November to try and win the House and the Senate and try and consolidate gains. Make transgender Americans the boogeyman. Make transgender Americans the monster to fear. Now, hopefully, voters don't fall for this and people don't fall for it. And that's, again, why we need a concerted, workers-first, people's-first movement that's, that's out in these streets and that's in these, that's in these meetings. During that comment period, people in Virginia, get out there. Make your voices heard. Because... This need, this is not about anything more than harming every Virginia school child, whether they're cis or trans, and and by and by association and by spreading, affecting every American school child. This is about targeting public education, and they're stepping on the most marginalized kids in our country to do it. It's sick. It's wrong, and it's cruel. Yeah, absolutely. And a part of this uh, policy is uh, uh, the the stipulation that parents have to make a a written w- request uh, that their children can be referred to by a different name or pronoun um, that has to be uh, submitted in writing. But even if parents make that request in writing, the guidelines say that teachers cannot be compelled to refer to transgender students by their name and gender if it goes against the teacher's constitutionally protected free speech rights, uh, free speech rights. What What is the role of teachers and educators and school administrators in this kind of legislation that we're seeing across the country, not just in Virginia, Carly? Because it seems to me that these uh, Republican legislators are using teachers and educators and administrators against trans students also. And I don't hear a lot of hue and cry from maybe as many teachers and and educators and administrators as I would like to hear about uh, uh, how wrong this legislation is and how it actually puts them in a position where they are almost being made forced to violate the rights of their own students. Well, I mean, there's a a lot of layers there. Number one, a lot of teachers are speaking out. A lot of teachers have spoken out. Teachers unions are, are, are speaking out. The American Federation of Teachers have, have spoken out at length about this. The, where teachers and where many administrators are in a bind is mainly in states that are pushing this level of hysteria to, to a ridiculous end. They are also bound up by the fact that the same legislatures are going after these that are going after these laws are also the same legislatures that are constricting their funding. So in many ways, teachers and administrators are kind of in that bind. They want to speak out, but if we speak out, then they're going to defund this some more. So it, it, in some ways, it's a tightrope. Now there are other teachers who yes, who have totally joined the Kool Aid and are allowing. And they will say, no, it's against my constitutional right to get your pronouns right now. I like what a good friend of mine as a teacher said. If you have a problem with a kid's pronouns, you can find another job. If you have a problem with, with, with trans youth or with non-binary youth in your classroom, the answer is simple. You go find another job. 
more and more of that ethos needs to come into needs to be in our schools and needs to be in our be among our administrators and in a lot of places there are but you're dealing with states which are really looking at we that are really looking at reactionary reductivist policies here and you put it and a lot of teachers administrators again are in that box of what they can say and what they can't say there's also another thing jackie i want to touch on because mm. this is another variable to this and this is something that a lot of people, I want people to understand this. Where I live in Connecticut right now, I know I've gotten close to about three families recently. There is a group of people in Connecticut. I'm, I've been working in some, some with this group who are, in a sense, forming a welcoming committee for families who have had to flee these states with these draconian legislation because they realize we can't live here. We are parents who affirm our child. Our child is trans and we can't, I can't live here. My child can't exist here. It's not safe. And in turn, they are, they, they are affect political refugees requesting political asylum in the United States from one state to another. It's ridiculous. That is the other side. That's the human equation of this is that right now there are, there are parents who are so fiercely, who are fiercely so wanting to protect their child that they will do anything to do it, even packing up and, and, and selling everything they have and striking out for places that are safe for helping them find work, find housing, and find a place for their child to be safe. This should shame every American because no American should, be, should feel unsafe anywhere in our country. This should be a safe space for every American from Maine to Maui. And if it's not, we have an issue, and right now we're building two. We're building two separate Americas. We're building an America that actually lives up to the tenets of our jurisprudence, and we're building a no trans land for transgender Americans. It's cruel and it's wrong. If there, to me, that is the greatest reason why why edicts like this thing that Glenn Youngkin is putting down, a tyrannical edict, no less, should be fought with every fiber of our beings and with us in the streets as working people. Yeah, and let's not forget that Virginia has a, a particular history uh, along these lines with uh, the uh, history of massive resistance in the state of Virginia to uh, the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education, which uh, integrated or ended segregation of public schools. And rather than adhere to the Supreme Court decision, Virginia public schools, many Virginia public schools decided to close instead. So there were there were private Christian academies established in Virginia so that white students could go to still segregated schools in opposition of a Supreme Court decision to integrate schools. So it's not, you know, this kind of... of this isn't new. Exactly, right. Jackie. This is not new. And really, it goes back to the question that we've revisited as long as the United States of America has existed as a nation who is an, who is an American. And that's what it comes back to. It, we, we had that question with the Three-Fifths Compromise. We had that question with every compromise in regards to chattel slavery. We had that question as far as, as suffrage for women in the position of women in society. We've had this question again and again and again. We, and now this question has come to 1.6 million transgender Americans. Ultimately, it comes back to who is American. And that also involves a question for every citizen. What kind of country do you want? Do you want a country that's ready to face the challenges 
of the of the same treatment. We got some challenges that we got we have to face as a nation. Or are we going to try and harken back to a past that never truly that never existed? This this golden past of when everything was simple and everything was white, a past that never existed, and a past that will put us at our peril in the future ahead if we try to bring it back into being. That's the question. And I encourage everyone to just look, look, look in the mirror and ask, what is your answer to it? We already know what Glenn Duncan and the other Trump and the Trump insurrectionist Republicans have as an answer. But the individual question, especially the people who are in the American proletariat, yes, I said that word. Because right now, working class, we've got to be stand up and be counted on this issue because it's your fight, too. You've got to ask, which nation do you want? What's your answer? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carly Webb, for joining me. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about an ignominious date in the history of all things evil, I guess, and that is the founding or the establishment of the Central Intelligence Agency. And I'm happy to be joined for this conversation by John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Jackie. I mean, I I know that we have to mark these occasions, you know, because they are important in the history of this country and all of the deeds that it carries out around the world. And the CIA has always been at the <laughs> at the central <laughs> focus, the central point of a lot of those ignominious deeds. So on uh, uh, September 18th. 1947, the CIA was established by the National Security Act. So, I mean, I guess the question a lot of people have or should have is, how intelligent is the the CIA? (laughs) They call themselves the Central Intelligence Agency. They have a a, a really horrendous 75-year record. Terrible. And I think chief of all, especially for we anti-imperialists, is the the obsession with leftist leaders yes. in other countries. Yes. So, I mean, how far does that go back? Was that like a part of the the central reason for the founding? I keep saying central, not in not not, <laughs> not entirely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was was that like taking down leftist leaders? Was that the the main reason yes. the CIA was even founded? It, in- it was the main reason, and you look back. Uh, you look back over the years, over the decades, too, and you can see how so many bad decisions were made because the judgment of the CIA's leaders was clouded by an obsession with communism. Mm. Uh, I've told this story a number of times, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it again because it's uh, it's important in this context. 
I've I've got a, a friendship with Bob Shear. Bob Shear was a very longtime reporter for the uh, Los Angeles Times. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He runs the Shear Post and and the Shear Intelligence podcast now. And he told me once when he was a a very young uh, mid twenties journalist, he was very interested in the CIA backed coup in Iran, mm. and so he found a Washington D.C. telephone book. And he looked up Kermit Roosevelt, the the man who was the son of President Theodore Roosevelt and a very senior CIA officer who was actually responsible for implementing the coup that overthrew a democratically elected prime minister, Mossadegh, in uh, Iran and uh, replaced him with the Shah. Right. And uh, he just called him. He was in some retirement home in northwest Washington And uh, Kermit Roosevelt had never given an interview before, but he was old. He was in his 80s by then, and he wanted to tell his story. And so Bob flew to Washington and interviewed Kermit Roosevelt. And Kermit Roosevelt said that the coup in Iran was the gravest mistake he had ever made in his life. Wow. But there was this obsession with communism where it had to be stopped at all costs, even if it meant forsaking exactly those things that we that we built our own country on democracy and freedom and freedom of religion and freedom of the press etc cetera, etc cetera. that was great for us but not for anybody else who might consider improving relations with a communist country now the the crazy part about that is that Mossadegh was not a communist. Right. In fact, he was an anti-communist. There was a communist party in Iran called the Two-Day Party Mm -hmm. that was aligned with the Soviet Union. The Two-Day Party ran a candidate against Mossadegh. And Mossadegh did not have the Two-Day Party in his governing coalition. So this was just a mistake from the very beginning. And, And this is very typical of um, of CIA activities over the years, just a year uh, a year or two after the Iran coup, uh, there was the Suez Crisis. Right. Why? Because the Soviets had improved relations with the Egyptians, and the Soviets were uh, going to be given um, uh, passage rights mm-hmm. through the Suez Canal, and wow. so the the UK. And uh, France and Israel invaded Suez with intelligence from the United States and and took it over. Wow. And this kind of thing happened, you know, all over the world. You, you look at African countries and the number of of leaders or or leaders of movements mm-hmm. who were assassinated or deposed mm-hmm. uh, just because they might possibly someday uh, establish diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. The same thing happened in Central and South America over the years as well. And, you know, there seems to me to be an, an outsized focus on Cuba, particularly Fidel Castro uh, uh, in the CIA's history. Speak to that a little bit. I mean, of course, there's, you know, the the focus on communism. But when Fidel Castro uh, successfully pulled off the revolution in Cuba, it seems to me the CIA, that's when they really just completely lost the plot. And they did it so badly. Mm. You know, they tried to they tried to kill Fidel Castro more than a half a dozen times, like legitimate assassination attempts, and they did it in the oddest, strangest ways. Um, they uh, they put poison on the steering wheel of his car, hoping that it would seep into his skin and, and kill him. They tried to put an explosive in his cigar 
so that it would blow up when he lit it and and kill him. Uh, they had conversations with uh, Santo Traficante Sr., the, the mob boss of Florida, about sending hitmen to Cuba to shoot him, mafia hitmen to shoot him. They tried repeatedly uh, to kill Castro. And, you know, it was always about the 90 miles, right? Mm. The Soviets mm-hmm. have a beachhead 90 miles from Miami. It wasn't Miami. It was it was uh, Key West. But right. the same idea. 90 miles. You can see the lights of Havana <laughs> at night. That's how close the Soviets are. And uh, it never really mattered. You know, the Soviets. Well, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but. The, the Soviets understood this American obsession with Cuba and they um, and they took advantage of it by improving relations with Cuba mm-hmm. very, very much. Yeah. And uh, and they knew that there was almost nothing the United States could do about it. And I think that's still basically proving to be true yeah. <laughs> all these years later. But it's not just foreign uh, leftist communist leaders no. uh, or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, leaders of liberation struggles who are, are, you know, maybe have socialist leanings that the CIA targeted. They also targeted U.S. citizens. Yeah, they sure um, did. And, and, and through a program that I actually now, now listen, I don't know everything. And I, 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 I hear people say, oh, the CIA did this, that and the third. And 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 I take it with a grain of salt, but that grain of salt becomes smaller and smaller each right, year that I'm alive right. because I recognize that the CIA has really done some really horrible things. And one of those programs that sounds ridiculous, but they actually did it, is MKUltra. What yeah. is MKUltra? Yeah, MKUltra is a very dark operation, dark period in the history of the United States. Uh, the CIA was out of control with this operation called MKUltra. It um, it allowed the, uh, the CIA to experiment on U.S. citizens, and they did things like um, uh, they dosed people with LSD just to see how they would react. And in one case, they dosed a CIA contractor who uh, committed suicide. Right. He didn't know what was happening to him, and he jumped out of a hotel window. Uh, They used a variety of different uh, devices to experiment on on people, American citizens. Uh, They they called it things like crowd control experimentation, right? They also did crazy stuff like they they, um, studied ESP and mind control and, you know, just stuff that you see in in movies, Manchurian Candidate kind of stuff. Right. Uh, that ended in 1975 with the advent of the Church Committee, and um, and it was all exposed to the public. Now, not a week goes by that I don't get an email or a phone call from somebody who swears that MKUltra is still happening today. It's happening to them. Right. The CIA is beaming waves at their head and. I'm unaware of any such uh, activity, uh, but in MK Ultra for many years until 1975 was a very dark thing. You know, it's weird because, you know, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, you know, we're unaware of any such acti- activity, but because they've done it before, it's not outside of the realm of and possibility. You, that... know, you know, Bill Binney, yes. who was the number four at uh, NSA. Bill's a friend of mine, and Bill says that what these people are describing it has some science behind it. Mm. Now, I will say that I did a, I did a consulting contract with the American Psychological Association, and um, 
and they told me that this is a very common mental illness where when people feel overwhelmed, their brains default to to a point where they want to blame what they believe is the most logical person causing them these these problems. And that most logical person or organization is is something sinister. It's something that they don't understand. It's something that they don't know the details of. It It tends to be the CIA. And so a lot of people believe that the CIA is, you know, beaming some sort of directed energy uh, weapons at them. I'm, I'm confident that that's not the case. With that said, we should probably look at DARPA, mm, yeah. right? Yeah. We right. should probably look at NSA. Perhaps the FBI. <laughs> you know, if Bill Ben, if Bill Binney says there's science behind it, I believe Bill Binney. I just I'm not convinced it's the CIA. And, and you know, the CIA is is also really good at manipulating information. Oh, yeah. Propaganda warfare. This is not a new thing. The CIA has been doing this, I mean, since its inception in 1947. But I mean, how are we seeing the legacy of that 75 years later? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. And I would point to the National Defense Authorization Act of of uh, 2011 mm. as 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 describing not describing as perpetuating the CIA uh, legacy of propaganda. In the National Defense Authorization Act of, of 2011, for the very first time in American history, Congress allowed the CIA to propagandize the American people. Wow. And, you know, it, it started off innocently enough. Always does. Yeah. And the CIA seized it. What it was, was, you know, it was always illegal to propagandize the American people, right? You can't, you can't listen to Voice of America in the United States, for example. You're not supposed to anyway. But we have this thing called radio and TV Marti, which is supposed to be propaganda broadcast to Cuba. The truth of the matter, and I did a, a, an in-depth study about this when I was the chief investigator at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The truth is, the only time they don't block radio and TV Marti in Cuba is when they play baseball games. Wow. Right? They love Major League Baseball. So the propaganda doesn't work. Well, uh, the Dish Network carried TV Marti because you can pick up the Dish Network in Cuba. The problem is when they're beaming it to Cuba, you can also pick it up in a very small slice of Florida. So Dish TV, Dish Network went to Congress and said, hey, listen, you know, it's illegal. People in Florida can watch this, uh, this baseball uh, game. Uh, can you legalize it? And so they legalized it. But by legalizing it, they made it legal to propagandize everybody in America, not just that little strip of Floridians that wanted to watch baseball. So from that, we have, you know, the, the CIA perpetrating or propagating the weapons of mass destruction lie uh, and all everything that came from that. You know, right. really quick, in the last minute or so we've got left, John, you started out talking about the CIA. Uh, they're in their sole focus was to uh, counter communism yes. and to counter the Soviet Union. Is the CIA exactly back where it started in 1947? Oh, pretty much. It's just that the enemy now is, uh, well, now it's it's uh, several fold. It's um, uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalism. It's China. It's Russia. Uh, it's North Korea. So, yeah, it's the same idea. Yeah. The core hasn't changed at all. 
Yeah. And the, the, the tactics really haven't changed. We just are not really aware of everything the CIA is doing. And they're certainly probably not going to go away anytime soon. But this is why we need to talk about these ignominious uh, observations of uh, the establishment of these organizations so that we can keep an eye on who's keeping an eye on us. I want to thank John Kiriakou so much for joining me for this segment. This is Jackie Lukeman. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We will be back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, great to be back with you, Jackie. Thank you. Great to have you back this week, especially since this story has emerged out of San Francisco, which is absolutely horrendous. And it involves DNA from a rape kit that was used by the police in San Francisco to arrest the victim of the sexual assault in a completely unrelated property crime case last year. So what is going on with uh, this case and how DNA from a rape kit was used to arrest a victim of a sex crime for something entirely different? Yeah, this this case just really, really bothered me so much to see, Jackie. I mean, just, just reading it, it's, uh, you know, the idea that you can be sexually assaulted, have the, the courage and ability to go to the police, have the rape kit done, and then years later, you're going to be arrested based on the DNA uh, in, in that rape kit that the police, you know, are going to arrest you from that, that that the DNA can actually be used in a criminal investigation, just offensive on so many levels to me. You know, I, I agree that uh, as this woman's lawsuit says, it's a unconstitutional invasion of privacy. Just the idea that, that the police could do that. You know, the other, the really, like, the, the other awful thing to me here is that this is in response to a retail theft crime. Right. This is not, you know, a violent crime. This is not a murder or anything like that. The woman was accused and arrested for retail theft. And if you, you know, see the news out of San Francisco, you know that that the city is and business owners are making a big deal out of, you know, occasional uh, instances of retail theft of people going into a Target or CVS or what have you, and you know, and stealing things. And you know, yes, that's a thing that happens. But in that context, the media coverage is being used to justify more and more policing and surveillance, including, you know, a massive camera network that is uh, being proposed throughout San Francisco. Uh, And so this story coming out in the context of all of that really shows you you can't trust the police. You know, the, the, the group that we're told that we should be able to trust, you know, the media, the politicians all say it, you know, you just cannot trust the police to, you know, to do anything really except to protect property. 
You know, and this is not the only time the San Francisco Police Department has actually done this. Uh, Apparently, the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco had to approve an ordinance this year that prohibits the police department from identifying uh, suspects in other crimes by using DNA from a rape kit. It's unconscionable that the issue, the larger issue of sexual assaults not being taken seriously by the police in the first place and this huge problem across the country of rape kits going untested that is it's just that is a horrible crime all by itself but then to have the victims of sexual assaults further victimized by having their DNA uh, illegally placed into a database uh, that was used to identify people for other crimes. I mean, isn't this seems to me, Chris, that there should already be a federal law against this? That it, I can't believe that this is even legal. Apparently, it is legal. I mean, to the point, as you said, San Francisco actually had to pass an ordinance preventing the police department from doing this. Um, but it's you know there are no national regulations around this kind of thing, uh, and we need that. We need to to know that you know if somebody does have to go you know to the police for this kind of situation, that they're not going to be uh, you know, criminalized later on. Um, you know, it reminds me as well. You know, many. Uh, many undocumented immigrants have trouble opening bank accounts, and so they carry cash, you know, when they get paid. And, uh, you know, many people here in New Haven, uh, you know, they struggle, you know, they get mugged, right? You get robbed on the street for that cash, but then you're afraid to call the police mm. because then they're, you know, you think they're going to ask you for immigration status or something like that. So it's people being, you know, re-victimized by the system time and time again, um, you know, with a system that, you know, is supposed to, in theory, be helping them. But again, the police are really only concerned with with criminalizing people and with protecting property. I mean, that that's really what this comes down to here. Uh, and there is absolutely no respect for women. There's no respect for victims of these awful crimes, um, especially, you know, in a place like San Francisco that is, you know, pointed out to be or, you know, supposed to be this liberal haven. But we see what the limits of liberal so-called policing actually can be. Yeah, absolutely. And we do see this also on a federal scale as it, it turns out that U.S. government officials are adding data from as many as 10,000 electronic devices every year to a massive database that they've compiled from cell phones, iPads, and computers seized from travelers at the country's airports, seaports, and border crossings. Yet another example of uh, U.S. law enforcement officials uh, putting citizens' information into a database that we know nothing about. What is this database, and why should we be very, very concerned about this, Chris? Yeah, this is uh, this is a story coming out of the Washington Post. Uh, and yeah, so CBP, Customs and Border Protection. Let's also start out by just, you know, naming that the border, as defined, you know, by the courts, is 100 miles inland from any sea or land 
border. So the border area is 100 miles from there. That is the majority of the population of this country that lives in a so-called border area where CBP has the legal right to violate our Fourth Amendment protections. Um, CBP has, uh, they're adding reportedly 10,000 records from electronic devices every year to this database. And that's computers, phones, tablets, you know, anything you you go through, you know, if you go through security at an airport or whatever, and they pull you aside and they, you know, interview you or they interrogate you and they take your device, they could be adding it. Uh, to this system. And they're capturing, you know, emails, messages, things like that, uh, that they can later search. I mean, just thinking about that absolute uh, just infringement on our right to privacy, you know, just, just coming through the border, they think they have some reason to suspect you or uh, you know, some kind of crime or whatever it is, and they pull you, they take your laptop, they take your phone, plug it into a machine, and you really have no say in this, right? If you're not a citizen, then, you know, you can just be refused entry into the country. If you are a citizen, they can actually just, they can just try to make life extremely hard for you. Um, although eventually they legally do need to let you in unless they can arrest you, uh, you know, and have proof of a crime, but they can make it extremely difficult for you. Uh, if you try to refuse to answer their questions or give over your devices, and then they can make queries on all of this information that they have gotten from these devices. They can search, you know, geolocation information, messages, stuff like that. Uh, and there's, very little oversight as to how exactly agents are allowed to use this information. Yeah, and the the kinds of things that they, uh, uh, the agents from the FBI, when I say they, I mean agents from the FBI and Immigration and Customs Enforcement and other Department of Homeland Security agencies, everybody in that group, they have uh, different ways of collecting all kinds of different information. And one particular aspect of this that I found shocking in this uh, report is the way they use facial recognition. It's it's not that they're necessarily using facial recognition when you're going through customs. They're doing it in, in a different kind of surreptitious kind of way, along with other ways of gathering information to put into this database. So wh- how are they doing this, Chris? Yeah, I mean, they're doing it on driver's license photos. I mean, they have, there's just massive, you know, databases from DMVs. Uh, and actually, this was something that uh, California got into trouble for a little while ago about just sharing, pri- you know, people's information from the DMV database, which, you know, and of course, our driver's license has our photo on it. Uh, you know, there's just many, you know, many things that you can get from a driver's license, including a photo. And so, you know, the the databases that CBP has, um, the connections that they make between or that the agencies have between the FBI, ICE, you know, all of these, these, you know, Homeland Security departments or, or, you know, legal departments, uh, you know, in the federal government, you know, they they do work together. They provide each other resources and access to the tools that they have. And again, I want to say, like, there is very little, if any, oversight into when and how CBP officials are able to access any of this kind of information. 
Yeah. And, you know, this uh, a database is called the Automated Targeting System. And it's used, uh, according to uh, a CPB, to further review, analyze, and assess information CBP obtained from electronic devices associated with individuals who are of a significant law enforcement, counterterrorism, or national security concern. But it seems to me, Chris, that just getting this information from people who are crossing the 100-mile border, um, that's just everybody. That That's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, singling out anyone who is of any particular concern. It just sounds like a dragnet to me. Well, I mean, of course there has been, you know, very significant targeting, uh, especially, you know, post 9-11 with the heightened airport security. And and really, in many ways, it is security theater. It's not doing a whole lot to actually keep us safe. It's just making, you know, just making us feel more safe or it's supposed to. Um, And of course, that targeting was primarily on Muslim people. Uh, you know, who are often, you know, just picked and taken out of a line, right? The, you're waiting to get into the plane or you're going through the security scan, you're getting your bag scanned, you know, whichever, you know, however it is, you know, you get picked out of a line, you get asked additional questions, they're, they're staring at your face trying to see if you're lying. And of course, you might just be exhausted because, you know, who likes air travel? Um, but that is, you know, they have certainly been racially profiling people um, as, as well. But Yet there opens up the possibility of a massive dragnet, and we know that there are other situations in which the government is running such a dragnet. And then they, going back to the last point, you know, they really pull together all of this information from so many different sources uh, in order to create this panopticon database of, of information on us. Mm. And just switching gears uh, just a bit, Uber apparently uh, has suffered uh, yet another breach of its computer system. So what happened with Uber's uh, latest uh, 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 security issues and how many users uh, and Uber, uh, uh, Uber contractors, I was about to say employees, but they're not employees, does this uh, latest hack or breach uh, affect, Chris? Yeah, you know, it's so bizarre the way that this has been reported because it kind of hit the news and then I don't know if the queen took over the coverage or what, but there's been no follow-up, particularly from Uber on this. There are so many questions that are raised. Uh, You know, what happened was, you know, one staff member at Uber was convinced into giving his password and authentication information to a scammer. And I don't want to blame him. I mean, mistakes happen all the time. The attackers were then able to get into his account and go through other systems uh, in order to finally gain access to basically, from what it sounds like, all of Uber's systems and repositories and databases. So the millions of people who rely on Uber, either as a job, uh, the drivers, or as customers, people who get food delivered, people who get, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, get rides, that's potentially all of our information is has been exposed. And Uber is not saying anything. They're not responding about what information from the public was uh, was exposed. What what was it downloaded? Was it shared? Uber has said pretty much nothing at this point other than that they've been breached and they're investigating it. And I think that that's really the criminal part here. You know, 
these kinds of things happen. Mistakes happen. I think, you know, there, there will be and should be a full investigation. And, uh, you know, we want a transparency report from Uber on what happened. But not saying anything at this point, not saying to people, hey, if you use Uber, you should change your credit card information, change your password, whatever it is. That's really the part to me that that is bothering me the, the most about this. Yeah, definitely seems very serious, especially since in 2016, hackers actually stole information from 57 million driver and rider accounts and then uh, basically extorted Uber, uh, demanding $100,000 to delete that uh, copy of the data. Uber arranged the payment, but then they didn't talk about the breach for more than a year. So I certainly hope Uber would learn from its past uh, issues and do better. But it sounds kind of like they're they're going to do the exact same thing. And uh, that might be a real problem for Uber users and drivers. But we're out of time for this segment. want to thank Chris Garafa so much for joining me. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, we have returned. It is Tuesday, September 20th. And in 20 minutes, we will be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and ask us about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all or anything that's on your mind. We definitely want to hear from you. But, you know, that's not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C., because all our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all can reach out and touch us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now on rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I am very happy to be joined this afternoon by my homegirl, up north, just a few 45 minutes away, Kim Brown from a veteran broadcaster and host of Burn It Down with Kim Brown and my comrade and colleague on Black Power Media. What's up, Kim? Glad to have you on. Jackie, 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 Jackie. <laughs> Hold on, Jacqueline, let me make one correction. You yes. are down on the, the, the southeast side of things. I am just shy of the northeast side of things. Oh, even closer than I realized. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, hello to the fur babies, too. <laughs> you know, there's so much going on um, in the world of, uh, you know, broadcasting politics. And it's almost hard to keep up with Kim. And, you know, I, I think what is always at the forefront of the controversy in in coming out of Washington is absolutely what's going on, all of the money being spent, uh, money being sent to Ukraine by the Biden administration. Now, if we recall, <laughs> um, the Joseph Biden was the guy that we were supposed to. We had to vote for him. Well, folks who felt like they had to vote for him, they had to vote for him to get rid of Donald Trump because Donald Trump was the devil. And he was, you know, going to to just run us off all off into the cliff. But here we have Joseph Biden, who is literally throwing money hand over fist as fast as the U.S. Treasury can print it at the U.S.-EU NATO proxy war in Ukraine. And an interesting thing had happened up to this point, Kim. And I, and I think that this has been really kind of weird for me, where Republicans have been the ones on Capitol Hill who were not as uh, uh, offering their full-throated report, not support, not all of them, but there were some Republicans who were like, ah, yeah, I don't know if we should be giving this much money to Ukraine and all this kind of stuff. And I, and I don't think it was for ideological reasons. I just think they just didn't want to support anything that Joseph Biden did. But I do think it put the so-called left in an interesting uh, position where you had people on the so-called left who were all gung-ho in throwing all of this money at Ukraine while there are all of these other issues going on in this country that we need this money for. But now, interestingly, Kim, the tables have turned and now Republicans are saying that they support this next round of money uh, going to Ukraine, $12 billion in Ukraine aid, while they are also still being typical Republicans in uh, demanding that other priorities that Biden uh, is uh, trying to include in this latest funding bill to keep the government open. I mean, what are your thoughts on, I guess, some of the Republican flip flop about their support for Ukraine. Um, and, uh, you know, what what is the signal for the Biden administration in any kind of a, 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 a of a domestic agenda if if there was any hope that he would be able to able to salvage one? In terms of what do I make of the Republicans now? you know, reaching across the aisle in true bipartisan fashion to agree with the Democratic colleagues that Ukraine somehow requires more billions uh, to continue this this war with Russia. Um, I'm, I'm just inclined to, to accept it as that, you know, both parties are the same head on the monster that is the American militarization and the ability to make sure that above all else, above the health of, of Americans and people who live in this country above the infrastructure that we see crumbling, not only in Jackson, but truly across the country in varying ways. Um, these are the ways in which our politicians will absolutely unite. And I look at it sort of in proximity to these upcoming midterm elections. And while not every Republican that has now 
said that they will support this additional Ukraine funding um, is up for re-election this year. But we do have 24 and 26 very closely uh, and, and, and fast approaching us. So I'm sure a lot of that military industry lobby money found its way in, into the proper hands up there on Capitol Hill that would make some people perhaps uh, take a more, as you said, full-throated stance on supporting Ukraine with military money. But on the other side of the, the Biden domestic agenda, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is. I can't tell what it is. <laughs> I look at Joe Biden, I look at his administration, um, I look at the ways that they have failed this country in terms of containing the, the COVID pandemic, which despite, you know, his erroneous proclamations is very much still going and very much still with us. Uh, looking at the ways in which Joe Biden has dropped the ball on, on student loan forgiveness, student loan debt forgiveness, I mean, $10,000 is a pittance, not what he promised. I mean, just a, a myriad of ways in which this man, which that's how I know America's coming to an end, because people were like, no, it's when, when Trump got elected, that's how you knew America was at its downfall. No, when they elected a clown like Joe Biden, you knew America was a goner. <laughs> and you know what? You you brought up the issue of, of COVID, and, and I'm glad you did, because COVID relief money is actually what is being tossed into the dustbin um, uh, uh, in exchange for the Republican support of this $12 billion for Ukraine. Uh, John uh, John Thune, Senator John Thune of South Dakota and Richard Shelby of Alabama said that the upcoming stopgap bill won't include, will not include money for COVID-19 relief, monkeypox vaccines or disaster recovery. Uh, all money that the White House has pushed for. But you know what, Kim? I'm not convinced that Joe Biden really pushed for any of that relief money, really, because Joe Biden was the guy, as you just pointed out, who said that uh, the the pandemic is over. So it, it's it's and and I, I I keep saying that as much as I dislike Joseph Biden, and I do not think he is a fully alive human being. I think he is is a partially reanimated corpse. That man has been along around for far far too long to not know what he is saying and what he is doing. So he 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 crafts this uh, stopgap spending bill that includes COVID relief funds, monkey packs, um, you know, funds for a monkeypox vaccine uh, and, and other things. And then he turns around and says the pandemic is over. And he says it publicly on 60 Minutes at the Detroit car show. So the. He he might be a buffoon, but just like Trump, he's not stupid. So I don't think Biden intended for any relief money to be allocated for any more COVID support or monkeypox support, Kim. Joe Biden is an accomplice uh, of of the capitalist state, of the owner state, right? And he's always been this. Like, he has always been this guy coming, um, you know, obviously from Delaware, but allowed Delaware to become a haven for all of these banks to not have to, you know, pay Delaware state tax because there is none. And just, just allowing for... Americans not to be able to claim their student loan debt on their bankruptcy. I mean, he has just been a minion for evil the entire time. So for him to make such a proclamation that he knows absolutely is going to continue to kill people. And let's be real here, Jackie. There are literally 
Hundreds of people dying from COVID in America every day. It, it comes out to about 3,500 deaths per week. That is thousands. I'm not even sure what illness or or virus or any sort of, you know, uh, something that ends people's lives. I don't even know what compares to that right now. Car accidents, cancer, I'm not sure. But all I hear is Joe Biden telling disabled Americans, chronically ill Americans, immunocompromised Americans, that your lives really do not matter, that we are not going to take any steps from a federal perspective, and the states are very much taking their cues from the CDC and from the federal government, we're not going to take any steps to help mitigate the further transmission of this virus. COVID, SARS-2, continues to mutate in ways that will continue to evade the, immune, the, 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 the inoculations, the vaccinations that are currently out there. This virus is always going to make sure to to, to somehow keep a step ahead of what the latest vaccines are. And at the end of the day, this costs people their lives. But America is such a savage, ghoulish place that, you know, we very much take massive deaths on the chin with the grain of salt. Oh, well, well, we have to keep going. The, the, the world must go on, right? The show must continue to roll. So it does not shock me that Joe Biden, even himself, as, as a person who is at greater risk for not only contracting COVID again, but becoming seriously ill and those who are in his age group, et cetera, the same way for him to go ahead and say that the pandemic is over is just going to cost people their lives and further to disable people. And there, again, there's so much still about COVID that we don't know. We don't know, like looking at studies from six, nine, 12 months out from initial infection, there's a lot of premature death. COVID is the third leading cause of death in America right now. So that this president would not take this virus very seriously just shows his adherence to capitalism, as always, and, and, and not to the concern of the American. Forget the American people. 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 Mm. Period. And, and you know what, Kim? I, I feel like this ghoulish acceptance of death due to COVID is not just a Joe Biden thing. I feel like it's very much an American thing because very often I, I hear people and I, and I was struck by that interview with with Biden, which I watched on 60 Minutes. And there were he was in the the, the arena that the De, uh, Detroit car show was held. And there were all these people walking around in this enclosed space with no masks on. And he's he's gesturing at, at these unmasked people in this enclosed space, basically using them as the proof that the pandemic is over. He practically said, you know, look at how everybody is, you know, pretty much out here and everybody's looking fine. So, yeah, the pandem- pandemic is over. But then he still says we still have a problem with covid. We're still doing a lot of work on it. But the pandemic is over that to me. That's too. That's him talking out of both sides of his neck. But he's not the only person in this country who is doing it, because I think that we have in this country uh, a, a very large group of people who are fine with certain people dying from not just COVID, but from anything. Um, but it just happens to be COVID now. And I think that that we do have an issue with people in this country, with Americans, and this ghoulish acceptance of mass death as long as it's, quote unquote, those people. Those people are, in this case, the working class and poor 
most of whom are black and brown people. And and I don't think that's something we can escape uh, connecting to the way the president of the United States is dismissive of the ongoing death toll uh, of uh, relating to COVID as people in general just go on about their so-called daily lives as if COVID doesn't exist anymore, Kim. It's disappointing and not surprising. I think it's a combination and the end result of people in this country just getting a miserable education, right? A miserable public education. And that's no just to teachers or professors. I'm here to tell you, people in America really act like they are not aware of how transmissible disease and communicable diseases work. Or like you said, Jackie, this acceptance of mass death, when people say, oh, well, 95 or 98% of the people who contract COVID, you know, will live, will survive. Okay. Well, out of that 98%, first of all, let's acknowledge number one, what 2% of 80 million or a hundred million, I can't even remember the number of, of positive COVID infections America has, has logged since the pandemic began. I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's, it's in the hundreds of millions, perhaps by now, at least 150 million. I remember when it was. But regardless, even 1%, 2% of that is not an insignificant number. It is a lot of people. It is a lot of people's moms, dads, sisters, brothers, cousins, aunts, uncles. Like It, it, is, it is people that mattered um, in the, it, to, to, to other people that, that loved and cared for them. But even just the mass disability effect that COVID is having. I mean, we don't even talk about long COVID, not to the extent of the conversations I think we should be talking about long COVID, because people are literally suffering in in so many different ways. And the public really does itself a disservice by not wanting to know this information, not wanting to know the kinds of long COVID symptoms that are out there, the number of people who, who, con- who contract COVID, who do contract um, long COVID, to know what the long-term effects of COVID are going to be. Like, this is all things that really we should all be invested in knowing um, if we're going to, quote-unquote, live with this virus. But not only that, it's not even so much that we're living with the virus. We're actually probably going to be living with several different variations Mm. of virus, Mm -hmm. some of which can do different things. And the Biden administration has to be aware of this, right? Like you and I are kind of lay epidemiologists, right? Do we not know (laughs) the ways that viruses mutate and change and and evade immunity, et cetera? Of course, most, most people should have that sort of, um, you know, armchair understanding of, 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 of epidemiology, so to speak. And so does Joe Biden. I mean, I know he's not, he's not the brightest ball, but he knows that much. Right. So the, 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 Failure to secure additional funding for, let's be clear here, free vaccines, free tests, because the 30 plus million people in this country who do not have health insurance, if they want to get COVID tested, if they want to get vaccinated, they're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. And that does not also strike me as a government, as 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 a, a, a country that is invested in making sure that this virus is in check, which we know they gave up that ghost long, long ago. So like you said, they are content with X amount of people dying. And as, those, as so long as those people are working class, so long as those people are poor, so long as those people are the, the, the disposables in the eyes of people like Joe Biden, and, and the rest of the, the, the owner capitalist class. And that is what they're content to do. And the problem is that we have to take steps within our own communities, within our own 
uh, families even to tell people to continue to mask indoors when you're in public. Like you, you are putting other people's lives and health at risk. And I know you may not think that you are because you don't see nobody else in here wearing a mask. No, it doesn't even matter. Like you need to practice that kind of simple human decency and respect for your fellow person, because not everybody out here has a disability that is visible. Not everybody out here, you can look at them and tell that they are immunocompromised. If you want people to live, if you want people to be safe and healthy, please continue to mask. Please treat this as though this is a pandemic, even though our silly president says it's not. Yeah. If people want other people to continue to live. That is the main question. But we're going to move to the first break of the hour here on By Any Means Necessary. We will be back on the other side of this break. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukman, and I continue to be joined by Kim Brown and Kim I want to talk for a minute about something that, you know, we political folks don't talk a lot about, but I think we should because it is connected to the very kind of capitalist exploitation, oppressive conditions, the disregard for the lives and the well-being of the working class and poor in this country that people are suffering. And and that's depression. Because nearly one in 10 Americans, and this is a study that was just published in the American Journal of Prevention uh, Medicine, uh, Preventive Medicine, rather, found that almost one in 10 Americans reported suffering from depression in 2020, with rates of the mental health disorder higher among adolescents and young adults. Researchers from Columbia University, Mailman School of Public Health and City University of New York analyzed 2015 to 2020 data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which is a national representative poll of Americans aged 20, uh, I'm sorry, aged 12 and older. And they found that more than 9% of Americans 12 and older experienced a major depressive episode over the past year in 2020. The study's authors note depression has increased over the past several years, years, rising from 6.6% in 2005 to 7.3% in 2015. Now, we're just talking about uh, the lack of COVID relief funds and this government's uh, uh, abysmal criminal response to the pandemic under the Trump administration and under the Biden administration. So the fact, Kim, that so many people, so many more people suffered a major depressive episode in 2020, that's not a coincidence to me. And I'm wondering your thoughts. Uh, I'm surprised it's that low. I mean, one in 10, that's 10 percent. That sounds like a very low number relative to all the challenges, you know, isolation challenges, work challenges, parenting challenges, 
uh, people literally grieving from loved ones lost during COVID. Uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm casting a little bit of uh, d- doubt on, on that number of one in 10. I would imagine it to be a lot more. Uh, I mean, Jackie, <laughs> you know, a, a country that does not offer universal health care to people that live here certainly could care less uh, about people's mental frame of mind and mental well-being d- during a pandemic, during good times, during bad times. Um, uh, America is, is not considerate or even um, even thinking uh, in, in the direction to make sure that people have access to those services. And let me take a moment here to shout out the, the, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Mm-hmm. Their chapter or their local out in the Bay Area, Northern California, has been on indefinite strike um, from Kaiser Permanente. These are mental health care workers. These are clinicians. These are psychologists. These are well-compensated folks, Jackie, and these people have 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 stopped their labor because of Kaiser Permanente's abysmal policies when dealing with people who are experiencing mental health crisis. For example, Kaiser would would uh, take an initial patient, have them in one time to see an expert, to see a doctor, and then would not reschedule them for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, right? So someone who is experiencing major depression or major anxiety or even, you know, having self-harm thoughts, ideation, or, you know, schizophrenia, any, any variety of different things. You know, if you're only seeing your doctor once every two months, that's not helping you at all. Um, so these workers have been on strike for um, a month, almost, maybe give, give or take about a month, which to me is the most awesome solidarity and, and professional ethics that you can take because these union members were offered higher compensation by Kaiser in order to end the strike. And that, that's a deal that they turned down because Kaiser refused to amend any of their policies um, as it related to their, their mental health care for their patients. So it doesn't shock me that people have been experiencing, I'm sure, not just depression. I'm sure anxiety. I'm sure of so many other um, you know, mental health issues and challenges that we have been dealing with during this pandemic. It's because for everyone who was alive to see the pandemic, this was something unprecedented. None of us have ever experienced this, right? And truthfully, I mean, the, the world leaders, but the, definitely the, the United States, I mean, just failed, 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 failed the people for a million people to have died in the United States in less than two years. I can't. I don't even know what the number is anymore, Jackie, because I I stopped looking because it. I for one, I know it's inaccurate. Whatever the CDC is reporting, uh, are the current number of of COVID deaths, and it's just very depressing because it's just a number. More than a million people did not have to die. They were sacrificed for capitalism, and that's something I would never forgive this country for. Yeah, particularly when we, as we've said before, a study came out a few months ago that showed that when people in this country, when white people in this country realized that most of the people who were dying from COVID-19 were black and Latinx, our black and brown brothers and sisters, they cared less about Things like mask mandates and and, you know, uh, covid restrictions and, uh, uh, you know, funding for free vaccines. And so so there is a correlation between uh, uh, who dies, who is sacrificed in this country um, and and, you know, who 
other folks in this country are concerned about. And I think that contributes to the higher rates of depression and the increase in uh, the rates of depression among not just young adults who are facing the reality that they are inheriting a planet that will be ravaged by climate catastrophe that this government is doing not a thing about, but also across gender, racial and income and educational groups as people realize, oh, my God, people in this country don't care that we die. They really don't care. And and I don't see how other than, you know, it's hard enough for folks like us, Kim, I think, who are politically aware and and have a little bit of an idea of what's going on uh, behind the curtains. But I, I can imagine how how difficult it is for folks who don't understand the nature of this beast and that this COVID pandemic has played out the way it has in this country because people were sacrificed to capitalism. I, I can I actually cannot imagine how difficult it is for them to realize that their country and their so-called countrymen really don't care whether they live or die. And this is the way they found out. And it's absolutely, there's, there's no other way to call this thing but a genocide, you know, a soft genocide, uh, unintentional genocide. Genocide is genocide. If the end result is a mass of people from groups that you don't particularly care for, if those people are gone, then the genocide has, has achieved its ends, right? It's achieved what it, it set out to do or what it's the, the people in charge who knew um, whom was being infected and dying from this virus at greater rates than others, if they knew that, right, which they absolutely did. And it's really disappointing, but very, I mean, beyond disappointing, disappointing doesn't even begin to encompass. But, you know, it's just its just very telling when I see these uh, Republican governors and even uh, those in Congress really upset about critical race theory, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, whenever, I, mean, I, I hate to even acknowledge it as that because it is not that. That is, CRT is not what's being taught in public schools. Um, what these people are trying to do is sanitize further American history and, and America's long history of genocide against, against non-white peoples of, on this continent. And I mean, I, can you just imagine being a middle school child or a high school child in, in American history and learning about how indigenous nations, whole entire indigenous nations were wiped out via this bioterrorism, which is exactly what we have seen happen with COVID, uh, albeit to a lesser extent, because I would imagine that it was way more than, an, a, than a million indigenous um, folks on this continent um, that were eliminated via disease. But even still, what we saw was an example of that. And to know that information regarding that study, that once white people found out that it was non-white people overwhelmingly dying from this, I mean, that just has big, big colonialist energy behind it. Uh, and, and I hope certain people can, can, can see that, even though I know, already know that they cannot. But when we look um, at, number for one, we're not, we're not done with COVID, and, and COVID um, is, is also not done with us. So, so long as everybody else like sort of gets in line in terms of ignoring the risks to themselves, to their families, to disabled and immunocompromised people that they have proximity to. I mean, at this point, Jackie, I mean, I, th there's enough, there's so much blame to go around, right? Because now people do have some more information, even though 
the, the you know the fish rots from the head. So if Biden is saying the pandemic is over, um, I, I hope that our people would have sense enough not to believe that. But but you never know. Um, but if people refuse, to, and I hate to even use the word personal responsibility because of the way it is it has been weaponized against you know, black folks in particular, but no, like if, if you know, there's a pandemic out here, if you know, your grandma is, is, is got some health issues. If you know that you're going to be around a bunch of people and you know, you're going to go see grandma the next day, like you need to take a, some, some accountability for your actions. Okay. Like either you go to the indoor event mask or you don't go, or you don't go see your grandma, like one or the other, but people need to stop being selfish in the decisions that they make and take into consideration everybody around them because one in five people are disabled in this country and not everybody has a disability that you can see. Absolutely. I mean, that's it's it's interesting that we're still having this conversation more than a year uh, on about, you know, this problem of ableism in our, in, in our response to this pandemic. I am sitting here as an immunocompromised person. I cannot. I'm not messing around with y'all in this and this virus. Mm-mm. You you do what you want, but I'm gonna wear my mask and and you know you that that that's how that's gonna go. But you know, on the global stage, Kim, there has also been a massive impact uh, that that the response from capitalist countries has actually made worse. See, I I believe that if the United States and its capitalist allies had responded to this pandemic the way China and other countries did, then this economic crisis that uh, is happening around the world wouldn't be as bad. I think the global economy, of course, would have taken a hit when, you know, the whole world had to quarantine in order to stop the spread of the virus. But no, you know, the United States and other capitalist countries didn't really do that. Folks ran around willy nilly spreading the virus. People died. Millions of people died. So that created, you know, an even worse economic situation. And then the U.S., the EU and, and, and NATO decided they wanted to start their little proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, which has created or, or exacerbated the economic situation around the world, made it even worse to the point that uh, the global economy is weakening amid inflation, the fight against inflation, war, and the lingering pandemic. Stubborn, uh, stubbornly high inflation has Wall Street worried, not, not like I really care about Wall Street being worried about anything, but, you know, Wall Street is worried that the Federal Reserve will respond by raising interest rates until the U.S. tumbles into a recession, taking the weakening global economy with it. And we've been talking about this with several economists for a few weeks. And the thing that is really terrifying and and I think right in line with what we've been talking about, Kim, about sacrificing the working class and the poor for capital is that in order to respond to uh, uh, inflation, the Federal Reserve is raising inflation, uh, uh, raising uh, interest rates, um, even though, according to the Department of Labor, there's strong hiring news. I don't know where that is. Uh, that's supposed to be good for American workers. But many economists have said that unemployment will need to increase before inflation cools off once again sacrificing the working class and the poor 
at the altar of capital. And I think this is all connected to the response to COVID, to the war in Ukraine. And, and, it, and it's, it is an inescapable, vicious circle that we have to connect these dots to understand that this is not just you know, one particular government response to a particular issue, sacrificing the working class and the poor really is the modus operandi of this capitalist government, Kim. Which I don't understand, because where where are you going to get your workers from? <laughs> it like if you keep sacrificing all your workers, whose labor are you going to exploit? How will you extract your billions if, if you don't actually have the, the labor force there and they don't seem to care whether or not there is a labor force present in order to, you know, retain them and pay them and give them, um, forget a living wage, a thriving wage and, and benefits and to provide for them. But, you know, when people decided that that's not how they wanted to live, all of a sudden people are lazy. People don't know where to work. We can't find no workers. No. First of all, a lot of your workers in the ground. Thank you, COVID. And thank you, Donald Trump and Joe Biden for that. But, you know, the other workers understood that, hey, I will be sacrificed for this economy. So let me quit <laughs> and, and and keep not only my life, but potentially my peace of mind. And I think people rediscovered a better work-life balance, I hope, um, while, while making different decisions about how they choose to, to expend their labor. But when you talk about unemployment and how it ties into, you know, are we headed towards a recession, the interest rates going up. Jackie, I hate these conversations about economics because I know it's phony. Mm. It's made up. <laughs> it's all made up. We might as well be looking at the Monopoly board and talking about how we're going to purchase our place in the boardwalk. Girl, this is some stuff that they made up. Because even when you talk about the unemployment rate, the actual reported unemployment rate by the Labor Department is not reflective of the n- number of people who are not working in the economy, right? So so how are we supposed to base anything else off of phony numbers, numbers that, that, that aren't even accurate, correct, or maybe probably not even intentionally? <laughs> they, are, they are deliberately incorrect, right? So everything else can fall into place. But we have seen... And, and this is likely the setup, you know, for the for the big payback for big banks or investment banks or hedge funds or whatever, because every sort of um, economic crisis, recession, great recession that we have had experienced here in the U.S. The last forty or fifty years, guess who ends up coming out smelling real good? At the, <laughs> right? it, it usually ends up being the companies, uh, the big banks. Uh, you know, big tech, like people are going to be okay, not regular people, not working people, but the corporations that are crying about how much money they could potentially lose because of the, the, the instability in the global economy, those people always end up being okay because those are the biggest recipients of any sort of of uh, socialized assistance, as, as it were, um, th- those people will be all right. The, the, the qualitative easing will come back into play. That of, you know, of, of uh, was the Treasury Secretary or the, the Fed, Fed Reserve Chairman Bernanke and, and Tim Geithner and all those goofballs that were in the Obama administration telling us why we had to pump billions of dollars into big banks so the economy wouldn't fail. Meanwhile, People by the millions got evicted out of their homes, and I'm, th- I'm, I'm fearful that we're going to see something similar, maybe not in the same way as we saw the housing crisis of uh, 08, 09, but, it, but in another way that is going to have a devastating impact on average people, on working people, and especially on poor people. 
absolutely. That's an absolute fact. But we're going to be back after this quick break on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please, you stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting with political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I am continuing to be joined by Kim Brown. And Kim, I want to talk about this case uh, about Adnan, uh, Adnan Syed. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was featured uh, in this podcast called Serial, and he was recently released from prison. And for folks who are not familiar, Adnan Syed, uh, his murder case apparently captivated the nation uh, on this uh, serial podcast. He was freed from prison on Monday. After 23 years, his conviction was vacated, at least for now, by a judge who found deficiencies in how prosecutors had turned over evidence to defense attorneys decades ago. Acting on a request from Baltimore City State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, Circuit Judge Melissa Finn ordered Saeed unshackled in the courtroom and sent home while he waits to find out whether prosecutors will seek a new trial or drop their pursuit of him. Finn said that prosecutors have 30 days to decide whether they'll retry Saeed in the killing of his ex-girlfriend, 18-year-old Heyman Lee. For her part, Marilyn Mosby said that after the Monday decision that her office had not yet declared Syed innocent, but that he was entitled to a new trial in the interest of fairness and justice. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and 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 say that, you know, I, I don't like Marilyn Mosby. Um, I, I don't think she is interested in fairness and justice, not from uh, the way she has handled the Keith Davis Jr. Uh, uh, issue with the repeated uh, uh, attempts to uh, um, convict him of crimes he did not commit. So. I, that that's my opinion on this thing. I'm not trusting Mosby to do the right thing here because she has a track record of not doing the right thing. But I'm interested in what you have to say on this case. What do you think, Kim? Well, on one hand, I mean, for Adnan to be freed after 23 years is incredible. And Marilyn Mosby did do the right thing in this instance, but even even when she does the right thing, she still manages to do the wrong thing, Jack. She did not inform the victim's family that, that her office intended to do this, that her office intended uh, to ask the judge to 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 release Adnan Saeed. And I don't know what uh, Ms. Han's family I don't I don't know their position on his conviction um, of of, of of, of him being convicted of, of murdering um, their daughter. But I, for, for her, for Ms. Mosby, not to even make the family aware that this was happening um, is, is a bit callous, right? It's, it's, it's cool. Like, it's, it's, it's a flip side, you know, of the good that she did to free Adnan or recommend that he be freed. I mean, to not inform the family of this 
um, was was really despicable, and really she should have some shame behind that. But we know uh, that Marilyn Mosby does not really have a lot of shame. Yeah. Even though she is outgoing as Baltimore State's attorney, she lost in the July primary to Ivan Bates. So Ivan Bates will be assuming that role, I believe, starting in January 2023. So whether or not Adnan gets charged again or um, is, is granted another trial is kind of in the hands of Marilyn Mosby's office. And, you know, like you, Jackie, I'm with you. She is not to be trusted, okay? Just because just because she managed, you know, to, 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 to do something correct on one day, she is the kind of person that the next month or two months, whatever, she will manage to do a 180-degree turn from that and manage to do the wrong thing. And I'm so appreciative that you brought up Keith Davis Jr. Because even though Adnan Saeed was not um, convicted under Marilyn Mosby's watch, um, it goes to show a pattern in practice of how the Baltimore prosecutors get down. They don't have a problem putting innocent people in jail for the rest of their lives for offenses as serious as murder. So if the Baltimore State Attorney's Office did that very easily with Ed Nan, why would we think that under the Mosby helm that the same office wouldn't be capable of doing the same thing with Keith Davis Jr., which is exactly uh, what has been done? So Ms. Mosby should really take our own advice and, and look at the own Higgy Haga that was involved in the Baltimore City Police investigation, the, the Baltimore Police officers that were involved in Keith Davis Jr.'s investigation and wonder why that she's about to bring this man to trial for a sixth time and ask herself why her office five times, Jackie, five times you're going to charge this man for murder five times. The last conviction got overturned and then she's going to trump up some, some, some wayward charges to pin on him. I mean, her, the vendetta against the Davises is very clear and very evident. So for all the good Marilyn Mosby claims to be doing with Ednan Saeed, she should do the exact same thing with the family and with Keith Davis Jr. because she uh, is responsible for him being there, period. Yeah, and it's wild because the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office actually investigated Saeed's case for nearly a year. They did their own nearly year-long investigation, and they did the investigation with Saeed's defense, and they found new evidence of potential suspects as well as materials that should have been handed over to defense attorneys that were not. Uh, The state's attorney's investigation determined that a key witness in the case, Jay Wilds, was inconsistent in his accounts to the police, and and it's weird that the state's attorney's office, it's, at least it's weird to me, that the state's attorney's office itself uncovered some of the uh, uh, the inconsistencies and the misconduct in the Saeed case. But Marilyn Mosby is still like, OK, yeah, we'll let him go now. But I don't know. We might, you know, try him again later on. And it just seems really strange to me that her comment of, well, we're not going to declare him innocent even though it was her own office that that found some of the evidence of these inconsistencies. It's just wild to me. But I think it's kind of indicative of the kind of uh, a state's attorney Marilyn Mosby has been, Kim. It's, it's wild because Marilyn Mosby is, is a representative of this system, of this institution. I understand that she is a black woman. I understand she's even had a hard time, a rough go as state's attorney as a black woman. Well, 
you you are representing a monster. Like you are representing a a demonic system, and that is of your own choosing. This is something that she absolutely chose to do. Um, but when it comes to her reluctance or refusal to declare Ednan as innocent, that is because that that would indicate that the system that she upholds and represents and is the front face of is a failure. Your system fails. Your system does not provide, deliver, or do anything pertaining to justice. What the state's attorney's office does, and uh, just like what the rest of these prosecutors all around this rotten country do, their job is to put people in jail. That is their job. Justice is not their job. Getting to the truth is not their job. Their job is to feed bodies to the system. And Marilyn Mosby has been exceptional at that during her tenure. And she presents herself very much as a progressive prosecutor. And I have a feeling that, and I can't even call it a stunt because this man's life, him spending 23 years behind bars and being let free now is not a small thing. Like that is a big, big deal. Okay. But I feel as though she kind of did this for a little bit of progressive cred because Serial was such a very popular podcast when it came out in 2014. I mean, it, it, it was it was a smash hit, a runaway hit as podcast goes. So in the circles, and especially in the media circles that Mar- Marilyn Mosby hopes to traverse in once her tenure as state's attorney is over, which it will be rather soon, you know, this is something that she can hang on, on her board. Like, oh, look at, look at this progressive, trendy, you know, um, you know, uh, the thing, thing that I was able to do while I was still in office to write this travesty and this miscarriage of justice. But again, she needs to write her own miscarriages of justice. Okay. <laughs> like, don't, don't correct. I mean, good that you correct in other people's problems, but correct your problems on your way out the door. Uh, State's attorney Mosby, free Keith Davis Jr. Yeah. And speaking of Keith Davis Jr., you did mention that, you know, Mosby thankfully lost her primary and there will be a new incoming uh, state's attorney, which, you know, it's a state's attorney. It's a prosecutor. So it's there's there's nothing to cheer about. But I do wonder if the incoming state's attorney has made any mention about the Keith Davis Jr. case and given any indication on where the uh, Baltimore state's attorney's office will go uh, in regard to the ongoing prosecution uh, of just just uh, of Keith Davis Jr. That's just the hateful pursuit of this innocent man. So Ivan Bates is going to be the incoming state's attorney for Baltimore. And if my memory serves, I believe he says he was open to keeping, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but an open mind pertaining to the retrial and the re-prosecution of Keith Davis Jr. I don't recall whether or not he made a a firm commitment on, on one side or the other. Um, but I know that that Keith Davis Jr.'s wife, Kelly, uh, was very much uh, opposed to, to Marilyn Mosey's reelection. So I'm not sure if Ivan Bates um, ha- has, has said anything definitively about Keith's case and whether or not he would continue to prosecute once he assumes that office. But um, if I'm taking any cues from Keith Davis uh, Jr.'s wife, then I, I then I support the defeat of Marilyn Mosey because... <laughs> Uh, she she was firmly, firmly in that camp. But on the downside to Ivan Bates, though, Jackie, obviously we recall the murder of a Baltimore motorist, a white Baltimore motorist um, who was shot in, uh, shot by a child, a squeegee kid in self-defense. Um, that child has been charged as an adult, being charged with first degree murder. I'm pretty sure that trial probably won't begin in earnest until Ivan Bates 
is assumed the office. But Ivan Bates has not ruled out criminalizing um, squeegee kid behavior. So, so there's that about Ivan Bates. Wow. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, as they say. <laughs> and you know what, Kim? I, I want to end this segment on on a happy note, I think, because that, that was a whole lot of gloom and doom. <laughs> but, you know, and, and maybe it's not a happy note. I don't know. But I've been seeing people talk about The Woman King, the movie The Woman King. And this is completely random, completely and totally random. And And I do not intend to see this movie because Hollywood and actual history are just really bad bedfellows. And I'm I'm not going to be, I will not be fooled again. I'm not going to fall for the okie doke. I, I don't need my self-esteem uh, uh, stroke that much that I need to pay Hollywood money uh, uh, to sell me their lie, their version of history that is an absolute lie. But I, I'm wondering, what, what are your thoughts on, on this movie? Are you going to see it? Or how, what, what, are you, what are you feeling about it? Madam, I was watching, I mixed what I like on <laughs> with uh, the esteemed Dr. Jared Ball having a conversation about this exact thing because I myself have not seen the movie. I have read, you know, some 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 hot takes about about the movie and its historical inaccuracy. Um, and I think people, I don't know, like it, it, it's so hard to say because, as you said, Hollywood is going to Hollywood a, a story. And I can... I don't have any expectations of Hollywood telling black stories, black historical stories accurately, especially not any stories about any kind of black resistance. Like I don't see them giving us the real deal on, on exactly uh, how that went down. So I was not intending to see it, but seeing some of the reaction from folks, it, it's kind of like disappointing that, that this is a story that they chose to distort. And I think there's a lot of disappointment that it's Viola Davis that has been the one to bring us the story or, or be the, the lead role, just because in, 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 in terms of black thespians, you know, of, of the current crop, like Viola is right there. Like she is right there. We love Viola. She's she getting her flowers, but it's like, Viola, please don't, don't be recruited into telling us lies. <laughs> lie to us by all we gonna love you regardless so uh i don't know i'm, I'm getting a, a lot of very takes here jacqueline but i'm not sure if it's gonna prompt me to go see the movie or not i mean i don't know i, I kind of feel like i you know viola viola davis is an amazing amazing actor but i i just i just kind of feel like she she owes people an apology for that michelle obama thing but okay i i i guess some people really loved it but i I just think that, you know, when I I think I'm getting to the point now that that I I want entertainment that is literally just mindless entertainment because it's difficult not to see the manipulation of the state, the propaganda, the 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 very subversive ideas that are slipped into something that is marketed to us as a feel good story about who we are, right? I, and 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 it, it's hard for me to be, especially in a movie theater. I cannot if if I ever watch it, it'll absolutely be on a streaming service when it eventually gets there. But I think it would be difficult for me to watch this movie in a theater around people who are probably not as, certainly not as politically engaged as we are, Kim, uh, but also who don't know our history. 
as as well as I do. And, I, and I'm not saying that I, I am I am an expert on either of those things, politics or history, but I certainly know more than I used to know. And, and this is the this is the I think this is the struggle that those of us who are politically aware have when we get to a point where we realize that the 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 system of control and propaganda and indoctrination is absolutely complete in this country there is no aspect of this society that is not controlled by the ruling class, by the ruling elite, by the capitalist class, by the people who literally profit off of us staying unaware or uh, uh, unconscious, right? So, so this is why some of us began saying woke, that we need to be woke. We need to wake up to this indoctrination, to this uh, 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 propagandization. We need to wake up to the messages that we are being fed by this system, that capitalism is good, that the American dream is something that can be had by all, that all you have to do is work hard and that you can be the next millionaire in this country, that, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, there's you should be loyal to the company you work for until literally the day you die, that you don't question authority because authority in this country exists to protect you. And then when we wake up to just one or two, maybe three of those falsehoods, then we really do become conscious of the entire system, this entire all-encompassing ecosystem of propaganda, of control, of ideology, of indoctrination that we are all subjected to. So that's why I think it's so difficult for some of us, especially those of us who are a little bit older, to sit in a movie theater around folks and to be watching the same propaganda and we're seeing the propaganda and other folks are not. And we're just like, man, we got a lot of political education work to do. But that is always true. And that's that's the struggle. But this is why we do what we do. And it's a struggle worth continuing. But we are out of time for the show today. We'll have a whole new show for you tomorrow. So until next time, y'all be good to yourselves and each other. Peace by any means necessary.